Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. I invite you to stand. We're going to continue through the Gospel of John in honor of reading God's Word. We're in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All of us have faith. Faith is not a religious thing. Uh, It's not a Christian thing. It's a human thing. Really, faith is simply trust in something. You're trusting that something will provide what you need or hope for. Many of you all had faith in the Tennessee Volunteers yesterday. I need to just go ahead and get this elephant out there so we can, you know, let it go. Uh, Others may have had faith in the Crimson Tide. I don't know if we've got uh, some of those here. 
so you, you trust. There, but there are much simpler ways in which we exercise faith. You sat in the chair in which you're sitting right now. And at some level, you had faith, you had trust that it would hold you up. I walked on this stage uh, expecting that it would keep me upright. And there is an expression of faith that we, we have all through our lives. And there are ways in which all of us uh, exercise faith or trust in things that do not actually support us. They, they do not provide what we are hoping for. And this is very much what we see in the scriptures, looking back at Genesis, that God, God is the one who has given us this nature of faith or trusting in other things. And he gave that nature to us in order that we would put our faith where? Right? In him. That we would trust in him, put our faith in him, walk through our life with his presence, trusting him to provide for our needs. And yet, what happens is we see through the fall and in our own experiences that we put that faith or we put that trust in other things. We put that trust in, in all kinds of things. And that faith is inherently in faith or trust in anything other than God is inherently insecure, right? And so this is what I want us to consider, that fear is actually a kind of faith. Think about that. Fear is actually a kind of faith. What fear is, is an expression of faith in something that you know is insecure. So if I'm experiencing fear at some level, it is because I am trusting in something that I know internally may not be secure. It may not hold the weight. It may not provide what I'm hoping for. And so that fear is this expression of faith in something that is inherently insecure. And let me ask you, other than God, what actually is secure? What can you guarantee will provide for you, will not let you down, will provide the protection that you need and all of these things? Right? Nothing. So inherently, anything that you are trusting in other than God is an insecure place to trust. Now, this is not all people do this, right? All of us, all humans go through life trusting in different things and in expressing our faith in, in other things to meet our needs in different ways. This is just how we're, we're wired. This is how we're built. And yet there are ways in which we, we are we are actually, when we think about addiction, so think about Paul sharing and, and celebrate recovery. And, and by the way, so thankful for him, his willingness to share and would encourage everybody. I would love for everybody who's part of our church family to, to go through CR and to walk through the step study because all of us have hurts, habits, and hangups, as CR says. All of us have different kinds of addictions. But what addictions are at some level is attempts to manage insecure Sources of faith. Because we know that the thing we're trusting in is insecure. And so because of that, we have fear. If you're with me, say, I am. <laughs> All right. And you have that, and that fear isn't going away. Because you can't guarantee that the thing's going to provide it. And so you experience this anxiousness or this worry, this fear, and what, uh, what addictions do is try to medicate that fear, right? 
It doesn't go away as long as you're trusting in something that's insecure. And so what we do is we medicate that. And we all do this, right? Some people do it in fried chicken, right? Some people do it in, uh, in, in all, all kinds of substances there, or, or different ways of coping, right? These are, these are realities that we all experience. Uh, and yet, this is, this is something, these, these addictive tendencies, right, are ways, are ways of trying to manage the fact that we are putting our faith in something that is insecure. Now, what Jesus comes, uh, these, these internal expressions of faith or trust in something other than God are what the Old Testament calls idols. And so we see this through the Old Testament, that, that idols are things that we trust in other than God. We put our internal trust, our internal hope, our internal security into these other things. And what is God always telling his people, his children, not to do? Right? We sang a song, not to bow down to idols, not to trust in idols, right? Not to, to put your heart's trust in anything other than God. Is that some like ego-driven, maniacal, you know, desire for his own, uh, you know, impressiveness? No, it's love, right? As a loving God, he knows anything else that we're trusting in, anything else that we're looking for as our source of security and, and providing of our needs other than him is going to let us down. And it's going to lead to all kinds of destructive um, actions for ourselves and the people around us. And so he's always calling us to turn our trust back to him, right? Off of these idols, back to him. And in many ways, what Jesus is doing, Jesus comes into a first century context where the Jewish people, the people who have been given the scriptures, have been called to turn away from idols and back to God, are, are actually completely engaged in idolatry. There's all kinds of ways in what, what Jesus deals with, uh, particularly with the Jewish leaders. We're going to see this. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of expressions of idolatry. And so Jesus comes into this context we've seen in John 10 as the good what? The good shepherd. And so John's given us this, this picture of Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. And he's come because the sheep have been following all of these insecure idols and the people who are leading them not to worship God, but to worship all these other things. And he's saying, I'm the good shepherd. I'm calling the sheep to come back to trust in me, to, to trust that I am the one who has come to bring you the actual security from God, that I'm the one who has come to bring your hearts back to God. And the reactions to Jesus and the claims that he makes, these outward reactions that people have to Jesus are what reveal their internal uh, values, right? And so people never... People always respond to Jesus in John's gospel one of two ways, right? They either trust him, follow him, give everything to him, surrender to him completely, or they reject him, right? And this is what we're going to see in our passage today, that these responses to Jesus reveal the inner values of people. For, first, we're going to see that for some the cost of following Jesus is too great. Verse 47. So the chief priests and Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, if you were here last week, 
what was the sign that Jesus had just done? He raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Now think about that. You think that should have got their attention? (laughs) And yet the, the Jewish leaders that are represented here, their concern is that the news that he raised Lazarus from the dead is gonna get out, and guess what people are gonna do? They're gonna go follow him. Now, they think that if this begins to happen, there could be an uprising. And we talked a couple weeks about about, uh, those who had led uprisings in the years leading up to this. And so it could be that if people think he's the Messiah, then there's going to be this uprising and things are going to get out of control. And what will the Romans do if this group of Jewish leaders can't keep things under control? You're fired, right? They're going to get, they, they will take them out of their jobs and they will take over. And that's very much what's here. So they fear Caesar and Rome because Rome right now is basically allowing them to stay in these roles of authority as long as they keep things under wraps and they don't cause too much trouble for the Romans. But if things get out of control, they says the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our jobs. And they are going to ultimately remove these positions and the security that these positions that we have bring. And so they are driven, I want us to see this, by fear. This group of Jewish leaders are driven by fear to protect their power. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Now, Caiaphas, we're going to see, is, as high priest speaking, prophetically more than he knows at the time. But if we just look at his words, what is it that Caiaphas is saying is, who is whose best interest is he looking out for? His own, yours, this group of leaders, Right? He's saying, it's best for you, for for these Jewish leaders that are in place, if Jesus dies, right, rather than this whole thing go up in flames. Now, we know that prophetically, again, he was speaking more than he knew, but his concern is his own best interest and the best interest of this group of leaders. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. You see, they have determined that their positions of power and the security that they bring are more important than Jesus. And this internal value and the security that they find in these positions of power lead them to want Jesus dead. Right? That's their reaction to Jesus. But we're going to see another individual who's not part of this Jewish leader system, uh, but uh, one of Jesus' own disciples, right? His Small group of 12 followers. And that is, is, we're going to see Judas Iscariot. He's driven by fear to maintain money. Uh, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. So Judas had been given a job by Jesus, and that job was to manage what? Money. We're like, Jesus, really? Was that the best person that you could pick? 
But what did he do with the access to the money that he had? He stole right out of that. He was a thief. And so his heart, his internal value was for money. He wasn't really trusting in Jesus. He was using Jesus to get money. And we ultimately see this play out in that what does Judas betray Jesus for? Right? Money. 30 pieces of silver. Right? So this internal source of security in money is ultimately going to be revealed in that he will participate in the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Handing Jesus over to be arrested and killed because he values and and trusts in money more than Jesus. And so both the Jewish leaders and Judas reveal their internal attachment to money and power. It is revealed through actions to kill Jesus. So this is the cost of following Jesus is too great. That what is worth more than Jesus, what they trust in more than Jesus is money and power. But we're going to see another example. And we're going to see that for some, no cost is too great. Verse three, then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Mary is this model of what a disciple of Jesus should look like. Instead of being driven by fear, she is driven by love. And this drive, being driven by love, is revealed first in that she sacrifices money. So she takes this bottle of perfume that our text tells us later is worth 300 denarii, which is a year's wages. And this is an incredible amount of money, right? This would have been like her inheritance, her life savings, probably an heirloom handed down. And what does she do with it? She pours it out on Jesus' feet. And what she is displaying is a heart that trusts not in money, but in Jesus, right? She pours it out willingly. And so this internal trust or faith, ultimately demonstrating love, is shown in that she sacrifices money. Now, secondly, we're going to see that she is driven by love because she surrenders approval. Now, this is where the first century context in the Middle East is so different from today because in this context, a woman's hair was her glory, And so a woman would have never let her hair down. The only person who would see a woman's hair was who? Her husband. That was it. Imagine that. The only time a woman would allow other people to see her hair let down was when she was married to her husband. Other than that, it never happened. And what does Mary do? She lets down her hair. Right in front of this group. She exposes herself. And and this would have been the height of shame. Again, we we don't pick up how scandalous what is taking place. She lets her hair down, and not only that, so there's this shame that she is she is embracing, but but what does she do with her glory? What does she do with her hair? She wipes his feet. Okay, in a Middle Eastern context today. What is the most shameful part of a person? 
their feet, right? You don't touch the feet. In this context, you walked around on roads that you shared with animals in sandals. How did that go for your feet? Right? There's filth that's tied with this, as well as the shame. And yet, what this woman, what she is doing is she's, if you were watching this take place, you would say she's lost her mind. She's lost it. But in truth, what is she doing? She is bearing the shame. She's saying, I give everything, right? My love for Jesus is so great that I don't care about the money. It doesn't matter. And I don't care what these other people think about me. I don't care about the shame. I don't care about what they think. Why? Because I love Jesus so much. Nothing else matters. I will give all of this up, right? I, I will completely humiliate myself as this expression of love for Jesus. And so we see that these outward actions of Mary demonstrate her internal value and trust and love in Jesus. Now, verse 7, we see that Jesus said, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. So what is taking place is that there is more than what Mary knows that is happening in her actions. Because what Jesus is saying is that her demonstration of self-giving love, of self-sacrifice, of complete surrender, ultimately is a sign that is pointing to and preparing for what? His death. So an even greater act of self-giving love. Right? That, that an even greater, we're not pouring out expensive perfume, but pouring out his own blood. Right? Not just letting down her hair, but being completely stripped naked and stapled to a cross in the public, exposed the height of shame. Right, this is, this is pointing to and preparing for this ultimate act of self-giving love in the death of Jesus. And it points back to Caiaphas' prophetic words in verse 50 that one man should die for the people. I invite the band to come forward as we prepare for communion. But I want us to see in this scripture that that Jesus comes as the good shepherd. And the good shepherd is the one who the sheep can trust, right? We've seen bad shepherds that can't be trusted. And we've all experienced things that we have trusted in that have let us down or have led us astray. Or have brought destruction on us and others. And Jesus comes and, and what he comes to do is to call us to trust in him. To trust in him. And we know that we can trust him. Right? We know that we can trust that he loves us. That he has our best interests at heart. That he wants nothing but what's good for us. How? How do we know that? Because he died for us. Right? He died for us. He proved his love. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The good shepherd comes to lay down his life for who? The sheep. He's a good shepherd. We can trust him.
Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.